Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you got to decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? I beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. A couple of treats coming up for you on this edition of the podcast. As you probably know, I do a regular monthly live show from the BFI South Bank in London. It's called Mark Kermode Live in 3D. It's been going for three years now. This time last year, we did our Christmas show. We're doing our Christmas show this year, next week. Anyway, last year... We had a bunch of guests on, one of whom was Gemma Arterton. It was a really great interview. She was a really, really great guest. And I thought in this run-up to Christmas, it'd be quite nice to revisit that. So the Gemma Arterton interview, that's coming up in a while. But first, here on the Come On Film podcast, I do a regular head-to-head feature with Jack Howard. We talk about movies old and new and argue the merits or otherwise of them. The last time Jack was on, we had a real set too about the Dark Knight trilogy in which one of the Dark Knight trilogy is the best of the movies. But this week we're talking about a current release, a film that's in cinemas right now, and it's divided audiences and critics. Audiences have loved it, critics have not been kind about it. So, settle back and enjoy me and Jack Howard talking Bohemian Rhapsody. So I'm delighted to welcome back to Coming on Film, uh, Jack Howard. Hello. The thing that, that we're going to talk about today is a film that we both see, and I think we, we both really like it, although I think perhaps for different reasons. You sent me a text saying, we have to talk about Bohemian Rhapsody. And I immediately said, yeah, great, fabulous. And when Bohemian Rhapsody came out, the critics, they, you know, they panned it. And it was very much like what happened with Greatest Showman, that it got very, very, very negative reviews, and then it did absolute Beezer box office business. And I really enjoyed it. But do you want to go first or... No, by all means, take okay. the reins. So, I grew up with Queen. I mean, not in the same house or anything, but I mean... <laughs> <laughs> right, Rog. You know. I want to see that sitcom. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Me and Brian make a cup of tea. So, one of the first gigs that I went to see was Queen in Hyde Park oh, in the Oh, I'm 90s. so jealous. Well, you would have been hardly born at that point. What, what year was that? 76. Yeah, 76, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't born at all. You know, you literally weren't even alive. <laughs> That's just terrifying. You, so, in 1976? Yeah. I was born in 1992. That's just you, terrifying. Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't even do the maths on that. Of course you weren't born in 1976. Because, <laughs> but I, but uh, that's really funny. Yes, of course. I'm sorry. I know that you're half my age, but I just... Somehow that puts it into such horrible perspective. <laughs> so thanks for that, Jack. Anyway, I went to see Queen in Hyde Park in 1976. 
And it was the first festival I'd been to. And I think it was free. And it was Queen and the other acts on the bill were Kiki D, who had just had a number one with Don't Go Breaking My Heart, which she which is a duet with her and Elton John. Elton John was a popular entertainer in the 1970s. Thank but, you, Mark. Um, and, uh, and he didn't come on. She, she, she sang with a cardboard cutout of Elton John and the crowd did the bits. <laughs> there was also a band called Supercharge and Steve Hillage, who played for like five days, despite the fact that no one was interested. <laughs> and when Queen came on, stage they had to wait for the for it to go dark because they had a kind of you know mega light show when queen came on stage i burst into tears i mean i was so overcome by the spectacle of them coming on stage and i had you know i thought queen queen two sheer heart attack night at the opera day at the races i lost it around the time of news of the world but i had everything up until that point so there were i was you know it was a real queen bore for a long time and then a friend of mine made uh, that documentary, Queen, Days of Our Lives, which is a, the, the, the definitive Queen doc, and it's a really, really brilliant uh, documentary about, you know, which does the whole of you know, Queen's career. We went to see the film together because I was, I was off that week. I wasn't, you know, so I hadn't gone to see it in a national, at a press show. I went to see it in the cinema. Mm-hmm. And we'd heard all these stories about all the things that had happened, you know, that originally it was going to be Sasha Baron Cohen and then that fell down and then it was going to be Ben Wishaw and then that fell down and then it was Brian Singer and then Brian Singer was off it and then Dexter Fletcher was on it and then Dexter Fletcher's name. I mean, all so those... So much drama. So much drama. All that stuff which, which says, okay, you know this is going to be an absolute... What's that phrase that, you know, a, a camel is a horse designed by a committee and yes. it's apparently it's going to be a total camel of a film. And... I was really surprised by how much I enjoyed it, despite the fact, and perhaps even because, despite the liberties that it took with what I knew to be true. So there are two things. On the one hand, there's the thing about all the things that I know that are factually wrong, like that's not the first song they played on Top of the Pops. That was Seven Seas of Rye. They went on tour with Mott the Hoople. That that's not the first American tour. That song is in the wrong place. That's two albums away. Mm-hmm. And the greatest conceit, which is moving the revelation of Freddie Mercury's illness to before Live Aid, yep. which is such an important thing as far as the dramatic construction of the film is concerned. But you know, it's also the thing that many people have, have objected to because it's so completely and there's at and least and it sort of changes the context of the changes, performance, you know, which is at, good. It does, okay. So Narratively. what I liked about it was, you know, on the one hand, I thought Rami Malek was absolutely brilliant. And I had thought when they said Sasha Baron Cohen, a part of me went, oh, actually, that's clever. And then when I saw Rami Malek, I thought, oh, okay, well, the, uh, this is right. Whatever it was that got us to this point, this is right. Even when at the beginning he's introduced with the biggest teeth any human being has ever <laughs> prosthetically attacked. I mean, I know Freddie Mercury had an overbite, but yeah. I mean, it's like literally Bugs Bunny is what, in the room. <laughs> what I like about it as well is that they've made them really nice big teeth. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yes, <laughs> really, really well-kept big teeth. But what I was really impressed by was that for all the things that it took liberties with the narrative and they were real proper liberties there was a structural reason because the problem that they always had with the film was where do you finish it there was a story at one point that the band wanted the film to go on after Freddie Mercury's demise and it to be the story of the band sort of you know resurfacing apparently that's why Sasha Baron Cohen left well that I've read that that's why Sasha Baron I don't know that that's actually true Sasha Baron Cohen has said that on a podcast but that's that's what yeah, he that's okay. what they wanted to do. I take it on trust that that is the case. Although I can't, 
I can't imagine anyone making a really strong case for the for the film going on on beyond anyway whatever. Yeah, it feels weird. The point is the live aid thing is a brilliant point to, you know, to start and finish. Oh, incidentally, we should have said this before, but if, if you're worried about spoilers, stop. Because we are doing spoilers. Um, <laughs> We're in deep now. Yeah, we are. But I actually thought that the, the dramatic construction of reconfiguring those life events so that when he comes on... St- I mean, it, it, it completely transforms what Live Aid was and is and what it means, but it worked. The emotional part of me just went, I don't care. Yeah. I'm, I'm perfectly fine. And I cried... <laughs> about three times yeah and I laughed a lot at the stuff with the band bickering I, and Mike Myers well the Mike Myers the Mike Myers section does jump out because it's got a Wayne's World joke in it which I laughed at so much <laughs> but then went well hang on <laughs> yeah, that's does that what, belong in this film <laughs> yeah. no well it, it, it absolutely doesn't but it doesn't matter I kind of exactly. got away with it that's okay, exactly so, how I feel so for you go on it doesn't matter is basically how I feel about most of the stuff nothing in really film. matters nothing really matters yeah very good so tell me what makes Queen any different from all of the other wannabe rock stars I meet I'll tell you what it is Mr. Reed we're four misfits who don't belong together. They're playing for other misfits. You're the outcasts right at the back of the room. We're pretty sure they don't belong either. We belong to them. So, I did go to a screening of this. Not only a screening of it, I went to the world premiere of it, which mm. I was lucky enough to, to, to attend. And I got to take my dad which already were in special Your dad and I are probably the same age. Right. So I grew up with Queen as well. Not in the same house. (laughs) (laughs) Not in the same generation, Jack. (laughs) (laughs) But because of my dad. And so like being able to take him to such an event as this was, was very, very special. And I was able to stand in a little special area and just enjoy the premiere and the sights and the sound of it and just watch him just sort of lap it all up and then we're waiting for Brian May to come by eventually he does and he's walking past my dad and my dad's on his phone and I go dad (laughs) (laughs) and he just looks up and I'm so proud of him but he just immediately just hand out hey Brian nice to meet you and and Brian just shakes his hand and goes oh good to see you and that they have like a nice little moment together and already the night's made like okay. I'm taking my dad to the premiere, and he's just shook Brian May's hand, <laughs> and and then we go inside. So you're, so you're, you're, you're whatever your serotonin yeah, levels I'm, are high I'm through the roof. Video. Like it's so great, uh, and I go inside, and it's in Wembley, right? So like the premiere it's, was in Wembley. It's in Wembley Arena. Okay, so like wow. so it's in such a significant place as yeah. well. Rami Malek is there. The cast are there. Queen are there. They yeah. get like a round of applause as they come out. They watch the film with us. So it's, it's, it's a bit surreal. And then the, as the film is playing, the audience are interacting with it like it's a piece of live performance. Yeah. Like they're stomping and clapping along, they're singing along, they're cheering, they're laughing, they're whooping, they're doing all the things that you would do if this was an actual concert. Yeah. So it was a fantastic experience. And I never want to see the film again. <laughs> because it'll never be... It will never live up to that. All of those experiences do not a film make it is it is just it was just a special night that i will never ever be able to recreate do you think if you'd seen it under other circumstances the the first time around it, it, it you wouldn't feel as warmly 
towards it as you do. I mean, I basically want... what you're saying is that it was it was the environment and the setting that made it what it was. I think so. I think I would feel differently. So Hazel, a uh, friend of mine, went to go see a screening of it. And then she saw it in the premiere and afterwards she was like, that was a different experience. Yeah. Because she was just sat in a dark room with a couple of other like film critics and things and watching it yeah. just on a little screen. Well, that is exactly what happened with Greatest Showman. Okay. I saw Greatest Showman in a press screening on a you know Monday morning at, you know, silly o'clock. And I sat there in a in a and I mean I'm fifty six or whatever, and I, I'm you know many of the other critics in the room are the same. They look <laughs> and sound the same as I do. Um, it is shockingly homogenous. And so this film plays out in front of us, and we're all going, "What on earth is going on?" I mean, seriously. Lots of people then got in touch and said, "Oh, you know, you completely misjudged this," and blah blah blah. The thing ends up being a huge hit, and. I thought, well, I sh- you know, I should go and see this with an audience because I, th- you know, maybe... It- and I went to see it at the Plaza in Truro and it was packed. It was like a Wednesday, okay? It's been out for a few weeks by this point. And I went to see it at the Plaza in Truro and it was absolutely packed. And it was packed with uh, parents and teenagers, all of whom knew all the words to all the songs and had clearly had the soundtrack album on hard rotation. And... Being in the room with with that electric, electric yeah. yeah, it was literally electric. And although I still have grave reservations about Greatest Showman, I saw it for what it was. In as much as I saw, because the thing is, if a film works, a film works. All the critical sniffiness in the world can't. If a film works with an audience, you can say what you want, but it's doing the job. And when I saw it in the previous screening, I thought this doesn't work. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't, it's narrative arcs don't make any sense. The songs aren't memorable. The songs I said, I literally <laughs> said out loud, there is not a memorable tune in that. For, yeah, exactly. Laugh, laugh, because, you know, evidently, I mean, I, so that does say a lot about the environment. When I saw um, Bohemian Rhapsody, it was in a cinema in Manchester, but it was an afternoon screening and it wasn't very full. There was maybe 20 people in the audience. And I thought, I mean, I really enjoyed it. And it was great seeing it with Matt because I mean, Matt knows, because he was the guy who made Days of Our Lives, Matt knows this stuff inside out. I mean, mm-hmm. he obviously he spent such a lot of time with Queen and he knows the story inside out. So every single thing that was factually wrong would bother him more than I did. We both enjoyed it. He enjoyed it less than I did because he did have a problem with how much of the story they had changed. But there were so many moments in it when we were both smiling and laughing. I do think the moment when Freddie Mercury's having this big thing about, about, well, without me, you wouldn't be anything. And he says, without me, you, Brian, you'd be, you know, an astronomer. And, and, and you, Roger, you'd be a dentist. And then and just John Deacon, and you... I don't even know what you mean. <laughs> John thinks I'll be an electrical engineer. He goes, exactly! And I just thought that was really, really funny. And I... What you have is a depiction of bands bickering in studios that's just the right side of populist. So even when they do all the chubby hum moments about what comes now, now the operatic section, the operatic section, I think it's fine. Nudge, I mean, nudge, wink, yes, wink. It's okay, but that's fine. You'll get away with it. I th- and, and all the way through it, I kept thinking, why aren't I having a problem with this? So now what? This is when the operatic section comes in. Oh, the operatic section, yeah. Mamma mia, mamma mia. Mamma mia, let me go. Beelzebub has a devil put aside for me. For me, for me. It goes on forever, six bloody minutes. I pity your wife if you think six minutes is forever. 
There's also a Mamma Mia factor, which is that the Queen songbook is kind of indestructible. That exactly, literally, yeah. you start doing those songs and you go, okay, fine. That's a friend right. of mine said that, there's a, the, like, you didn't like the film, you liked it because Queen are amazing. And I was like, yeah, but I had an amazing time on the journey of it. And every time it started to like teeter off and sort of go into a place where I was like, what the hell is it doing? It found its way back really quickly. Yeah. It did a bunch of like quick montages that didn't need to be there but like I was enjoying watching them just perform the songs yeah. and things like that so but also I think that the, the Queen song thing only holds up a certain amount because the stage show the musical which I didn't go and see I know enough people that went what, to see what we were rock you yeah it's pants yeah like, I, exactly I yeah. know enough people who saw it who say exactly that yeah. it's like the characters called Scaramouche Fandango yeah it's just like I'm sorry all the good songs in the world are not going to make this and there's a good. queen and and, and, and and there's a killer queen song track there it's, it's like the yeah. most obvious interpretation of the most literal interpretation of the music yeah. it sounded terrible I never wanted to go and see it the um, the stuff that I have uh, problems with because I completely agree with you I had such a blast with everything you just you just said and it is just tugging at the heartstrings and it is because I love queen so much and because you know, I was there with my dad and all that Sort yeah. of stuff. But the stuff I have a problem with, I think Rami Malik is. I tweeted this. I said I think it might be the best on-screen performance I've seen of the last decade. Like, well, wow. I, I completely, he, he completely disappeared. Now I never shared the earth with Freddie Mercury. He died in the late 1991, and I was born in early 1992. You were actually born after Freddie Mercury died, and that really actually desperately upsets me that I never shared the earth with Freddie Mercury. But then I saw that on screen and I was like, he's alive. Like it was the closest I'd ever come to being like, there's Freddie Mercury. It was so emotional. And I, I didn't actually cry during the film at all, I don't think. But there were so many moments where I came close because of his performance and because of the electricity in the room mm -hmm. and because of the emotion that clearly everybody had. It was so physical. It was such a physical um, reaction to it. The problem that I have with it is that it's doing so many things and it doesn't really know what it wants the story to be about. I mean, my prediction will be that we're probably going to get another Freddie Mercury film at the sad time that Queen are no longer here. I think that we'll probably get the grittier, nittier... Uh, well, the one that Sasha Baron Cohen would have made. Yes, I think we probably will get the, the one that's what he finds the most interesting. Whereas I think what they wanted to do, which they've been very successful at, is telling... The story of Queen and the story of Freddie at the same time. So they wanted to tell this really uplifting story about how Queen rose to fame and how they became uh, who they are, whilst simultaneously telling the story of the struggles that Freddie Mercury went through. And what I like is that they sort of managed to, to, to intertwine those things quite nicely and make it a story point that he would always be getting too big for his boots as Queen were, were, were settling down with families he would be coming, going off the rails yeah. and, and going into that world and I thought they did that quite well Okay, did you feel because one of the arguments against the film is that it sets up this you know, heterosexual settling down with the woman he's going to would be good, but going off into all these gay relationships is chaos. So that is one objection to it. And the other one is that somehow it whitewashes the act, the details of his life. Yeah. I do think that there is a narrative issue, which is that there is a suggestion in the narrative that there is a path of order and a path of chaos. And I think, I think it does run the risk of doing something that starts to look like you're saying, actually, this is the, you know, this is good over here, and this isn't. Yeah, 
I didn't really feel that, but now you've said it, I'm thinking about it being like, oh yeah, that is a risk, isn't it? That like people would interpret it like that. But I think it's a risk rather than a dumb yes, deal. And I believe me, so I mean, too. I know enough people who actually actively think that the film is, you know, homophobic right. and offensive, and not least because of the moving of the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. They think that that's not something you can you can move around for dramatic effect. I know some people who've been very offended by yeah, it. I don't share that offence. Yeah, neither do I. And I, I've known people being like, oh, I didn't know he was ill that early on, and it's like he's, he was. He wasn't uh, and that's sort of upset some people because it was like yeah. oh I, I thought that changed the reality of what I thought to be true but the thing I did think was that I thought it brushed some stuff under the rug right and yeah because it's telling a different story mm -hmm. and, it, and you can't tell um, that version of it while doing Queen are a massive success and and, and isn't this lovely yeah. and fun and there's a Wayne's World joke yeah. <laughs> um, but it's implying a lot of stuff like when he's at the gas station and then it's actually Adam Lambert who now sings for Queen. He's the one who gets out the truck and goes into the bathroom. Right. So there's a nice little reference there. But at the same time, you're doing a little reference. You're also implying that he went then went and cheated on his girlfriend. But we don't see that. We're just sort of implying that. Okay. And then you see the next morning after like a guy stayed over and he says, get rid of him. And then you see like him going into the gay scene and it's like slow motion flashing and then it cuts to the next, next morning. But like it's sort of going, don't pay attention to that. It's sort of going. We've do we're doing it just so you can know that this is part of. His we're not story. even doing it. We're kind of acknowledging it, and yeah. then we're moving on. Yes, exactly. And I kind of had a problem with that. It yeah. felt a little bit like dismissive of what I thought was a very important part of who Freddie Mercury was. Yeah. Okay, I agree with that. Except that I would say if any band had the claim to, to be able to make a, a version of their story that was you know that was sprinkled with glitter and, and, and fairy dust because Queen was such a was such an artificial creation anyway. Mm -hmm. I mean if you watch something like Walk the Line, you oh. you need yeah you, okay, you but you need all that stuff because that's where the songs are coming from. Yeah. And I know that when you know if you get into the later periods of Queen, if you get into you know Days of Our Lives and all that stuff, then at that point there is the biography is intersecting with it. But if you look at everything up until that point, it's creation, it's meringues. I mean, actually, funnily enough, one of the the criticisms that was leveled against Queen when they were you know, when they were big, when you know um, Sheer Heart Attack and Night at the Opera coming out, the NME, there was an NME encyclopedia of rock that said that Queen existed because of a vacuum in the British pop scene. And essentially, we said they were all artifice. They were essentially like the New York Dolls. They were, they were a joke. And that was what they were. Even back then, people were saying that. I did think it was very funny that they did that montage of, of terrible reviews of Bohemian yeah, Rhapsody, yeah, yeah, yeah. which was almost like the film going, we know you're going to hate this, yeah. but you know what? You're going to look really stupid in the morning. Yeah, that's really funny. I've not thought about it that way. Something else as well that I thought uh, was almost a shame was that I was projecting a lot of stuff onto it that I didn't think the film was actually doing on purpose. Okay. So like early on in the film, Freddie admits to her, I couldn't sing out of tune in front of them if I tried because I'm so myself in front of, in front of a crowd. And then he sees her before the big show at Live Aid and he's struggling with his voice. Yeah. And I'm going, okay, they're going to have a conversation and she's going to remind him you once told me that you could, couldn't sing out of tune in front She's of them if you tried. use the force, Luke. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like, I felt like I was, I was like, this is me projecting onto the film and almost like giving it more of that narrative than it actually purposely was doing. Yeah. Again, these are like little nitpicks. Okay. Well, okay, if we're going to do nitpicks. So I thought the thing with John Deacon going, I got this, boom, boom, yeah. boom, 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 boom. But that was chubby yeah. all the way through. I mean, the whole, f you know, the bit in the social network, which incidentally, 
the guy who plays John Deacon, the kid in Jurassic Park, is in the social network in okay. this scene, where Mark Zuckerberg is Top leaning... Nerding. Eh? Top nerd. Thanks very much. Yeah. Um, Mark Zuckerberg is like leaning on a desk in the university and he's so tired. And then that actor comes in. I, I apologize, I can't remember his name. And he sits down and he goes, do you know if this girl is seeing anybody? Um, uh, and he goes, listen, people don't walk around with a, with a sign on them that says they're in a... And then he has a re- realization. <laughs> that he, and then he runs off and creates the friend, the, the, the relationship status. And that's the last piece of the puzzle in Facebook. Bohemian Rhapsody is that scene over, over and, and over, over and, and over again. again. Yeah. It is just a series of that. I want to give the audience a song that they can perform. So what can they do? Imagine thousands of people doing this in unison. Huh? I think the most remarkable thing is there are so many things in the film that I have criticised other films for that I've said, you know, that. But I didn't really, care. But I yeah. didn't care. I, I'm I the didn't same. Care. And actually, there is something that's very fitting with Queen's music because it is that nothing really matters thing. I mean, Bohemian Rhapsody is tosh in terms of. <laughs> it, I mean, it's like what? You know? I love as well. They 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 themselves uh, in the film have said like doesn't uh it's not as good if you have to explain everything yeah, exactly. like, it doesn't mean anything <laughs> does right. it but like that, that scaramouche bit... <laughs> will you do the fan all that stuff yeah. which is which is which is nonsense it's just names yeah you know who cares because it works because, exactly you know... yeah and, that, and this is it as well is you've you've actually hit the nail on the head is that afterwards a lot of my like film critique friends were like less charmed by it than than i was and had a less special evening than i did and i didn't want to hear it I wasn't ready to like go into all these nitpicky things that I was that I'm going into now because I was just full of joy and I'd left being like I absolutely loved that yeah. I loved all of that experience and 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 the bit when they present Bohemian Rhapsody he says like this is too long it goes on for too long and then at the end when it starts Live Aid I'm like okay they're about to cut to black at any point like and 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 you're not gonna it's gonna be like the end of The Wrestler you're not gonna know if his voice like kept going or whatever but then they just do all of Live Aid and you're like I thought this was gonna end ages ago but it just keeps going and it's a little bit like the, the reaction to people we are sort of like in, in the audience the same way that like the studio head was listening to Bohemian Rhapsody for the first time it, we, we expect it to finish way earlier but i'm just so pleased that it keeps going yeah and 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 that is how i felt like by the end of it like i mean isn't there a thing about like a film's only as good as its last scene well that was i mean that that was the whole the whole miramax thing was you have to have an upbeat scene at the end because that's what people remember when they come out of the yeah and and that's how you felt about venom like you left venom and you're like i forgot i forgot that venom was boring i forgot the bits that were boring beforehand and and this as well, like it finished on that Live Aid performance and such a brilliant recreation of it with such detail and such care and such charisma that I completely like... Didn't you think the way he threw the shapes was... I mean, it's because so much what Freddie Mercury was in was the, the way in which he stood, the way yep. in which... The gestures were just... He had... It was perfect, wasn't it? So he had a movement coach. Like, a, like he didn't have a choreographer because... Freddie Mercury was completely improvised. They they had a movement coach and they just like they worked out different things together. And it was less about like having him be like completely routine, yeah. and more about him just knowing the like you say the shapes the of theme, him and yeah. things like. That. I loved as well like there's that really famous photo of Freddie where like he he like extends the microphone at his crotch when yes. he's like crouching down, <laughs> and you see someone take that photo. There's little things like that that was like 
I love that it's really just going for that tone of just eh. Yeah. It's it's a it's a bit fun, isn't it? And like we're making it specifically for people who love Queen's music. You know when um, Freddie Mercury says in the film, it's to do with the audience. It's and, and there's a, the bit when Brian May says, "I want to make a song that the audience can sing." So that's where the you know dum dum ch dum dum ch. And I know it's a cliche, but the audience makes the the thing happen. And I, even though I saw it in a you know, fairly not very full cinema. It wasn't a press screening. Yeah, and I think after that, and after the experience I had with The Greatest Showman, which I, you know, I concede, I just got it wrong. I still think there are big problems with The Greatest Showman, but it was a different film when I saw it with an audience. And I wonder whether you and I would feel differently if you hadn't had the experience that you had, and I hadn't seen it in in Manchester with Matt. And you know, it, it, it's so. I think, much I think of it, it would have been less special, but I, I genuinely think that on first viewing, I still would have like lapped up some yeah. of it. Um, I am. I am going to see it again, though. Are you? I, I mean, I, 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 I maybe I will one day as well. But like, I, I feel like for maybe a while, you and I should go watch it. I just want to leave it for a bit. Okay. Do you know what I mean? But maybe you and I should go watch it, and I could go. I could go. I was alive then, <laughs> yeah, all the way through. I was. You know, you weren't born yet. I don't think that we've talked enough as well about the fact that Rami Malek is just stunning. It's it's moments like when he's singing Love of My Life and then the crowd starts singing it and it's his reaction to that. Mm. Not even just like the impression of Freddie Mercury, which I would say is an insult to call it an impression. It's absolutely a recreation of yeah. who he was. But just those little moments like when the audience starts singing his song and you can see the shock and the joy yeah. and, and the disbelief in his face. I, I, I was just completely charmed by it. Like, Let me ask you one last question. Go ahead. How much of it do you think Dexter Fletcher is responsible for? I think he did about 20% of it. I think that most of the film was probably done. Uh, they he, definitely... says it, he says it was it was everything but the last act was what they were doing, wasn't it? So. Really, really. Because uh, I know that Live Aid was the first thing they ever filmed. That, mm. was, that was the first day of filming, which is so intimidating. Yeah. I love Dexter Fletcher and I absolutely loved Sunshine on Leith. Mm-hmm. And I... There was a lot of the film. I mean, I know that Brian Singer was, it was... It was only the last couple of weeks, wasn't it, that he was off. Yeah. And yet I did watch it thinking... Dexter Fletcher. Yeah, I mean, Un- it, it, unfilmed a Dexter Fletcher. Even it though. Uh, it seems to me that like Brian Singer is not a cool guy. Like it, like it, just just the impression I'm getting. Like to be fired. Yeah, I like, think I, I I think that's a general. Yes, a, a general and a generous thing to say that he's not a cool guy. Um, but I, you know, after seeing this and, and now Dexter Fletcher is fully helming. Uh, Rocket Man, yeah. and just a little teaser that I saw for for that. It looked like a similar thing. Like it looked like a, a similar gloss to to, to it that, yeah. that Bohemian Rhapsody. Does. I love Dexter Fletcher. I think he's great. I can't wait to see that because it looks so dreamlike as well. Like it, lo- it looks like it's merging between biopic and musical. Yeah. I think he I think he was a great choice to to pick up this. I can't believe he didn't do the whole thing. And now I'm excited to see what he does with 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 whose story? Who is it? Elton John? Yeah, he was a popular singing artist in the 1970s. Right. Jack. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to go see uh, Bohemian Rhapsody again, <laughs> and I would encourage you to do so. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for, but you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over seventy percent of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. 
Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Now, as I said before, Gemma Artson came on the live MK3D show that I do at the South Bank this time last year. We're going to play that interview now because, you know, we're in the festive mood. We're in the run-up to Christmas and she'll be such a great guest. Here, live on stage at MK3D, the great Gemma Artson. I am an actor. I know only my art. Mr Hilliard, you're right. You're right. Everything you just said. It's about respect for the art and for the artists. And it makes me think how wrong we've been playing Uncle Frank for laughs. Yes, he's a drunkard and a clown, but he's also all those people who gave their sons to one war and now their grandsons to another. Jim, firstly, welcome to the show. Such a pleasure to have you. Um, Thank you. Of all those movies that, you, that we just seen clips of, which are the ones that jump out at you as your favourites? Um, I think Their Finest and The Disappearance of Alice Creed and Gemma Bovary. OK. Yeah. Let's, let's focus very briefly on The Disappearance of Alice Creed, which was made in the Isle of Man. And also, you know, Mike Hodges was saying about looping. I had to dub the whole film. Really? Because we shot it in a, a shed in the Isle of Man. Um, a tin shed, and there's lots of shouting. Basically, I'm kidnapped in the film, and I'm in anguish and panic for the majority of the film. And there was an echo. And, uh, yeah, I remember the day I had to go in to do my ADR, and they said, uh, oh, yeah, you've got to do the whole film. And it was just awful <laughs> to have to re redo it in one day. Yeah. Uh, just, just so you know, my whole family's from the Isle of Man. I have oh. very great connections with the Isle of Man. I am, in fact, a uh, Manx ambassador for culture, so I'm just going to give you a couple of minutes to tell everybody how fabulous it well, was working there outside of the tin shed. Aside from the tin shed, <laughs> there's a fairy bridge, is that right? There is, yeah, yeah. But you have to say something like clap for the fairies or something. Well, no, you have to say good morning, fairies. Good morning, or good fairies. I mean, it's sensible. It's not a silly custom. It's, you know, what, it's... Just practical. It's true. When you speak to anyone from the Isle of Man, they, they, they're very protective of the fairy tradition. You yeah. know, they... In fact, we all got up in arms when they put up a sign which said Fairy Bridge, because it used to be just... It's like a little bridge. It's a tiny little, you know, it's just a white bridge on either side. And then they put up a sign, so everyone knew it was there. And up until that point, my grandfather would, you know, drive backwards and forwards over that bridge five, six times a day. And whenever he did, if he was in the car on his own, he would always lift his hat to the fairies. And it was, yeah. it was considered to be, a, you know, bad, uh, bad luck if you didn't do it. So we've always done that. <laughs> and uh, so the, others, the other two that you mentioned, uh, so uh, Gemma Bovary. Gemma you, Bovary, yeah. Tell us about that, because that's a lovely film. Yeah, and, and it didn't really get seen that much over here, but I made this film with Stephen Frears called Tamara Drew, which was based on um, Posey Simmons' graphic novel. And that was a good film, and it went to Cannes, and it got really, you know, lots of press. And I think the film's excellent, but I didn't think I was very good in it. <laughs> I think I think I was miscast. And then, um, and then this other I film. I think you did fine. <laughs> I was fine. But then this other film came up that uh, Posey Simmons wrote. I'm sorry, Posey. Like I'm always doing her books. But yeah, and it was a French uh, French film. So, um, but I just really like it. It's very subtle and it's funny, and um, but it's a bit French. So maybe that's why I didn't get seen so much. But yeah, I really liked it. Charlie, it's me. Um. I just found the statuette, the Cupidon, 
And, um, Charlie, you fixed it after I'd been such a shit to you. Listen, um, I miss you, Charlie. I'm sorry, that's all I... I don't expect you to forgive me. But I would... I would like to see you again. I love you. Before I ask you your guilty pleasure, what, because you're always working, you know, you're doing the Made Dagnum musical, and you're, what are you doing at the moment? At the moment, I just shot a film. I'm, I've started producing, and I made two films uh, so far as a producer. Um, so I'm producing another film next year, and um, so working on that. And then, um, actually, this week, I'm shooting this short 30-minute film um, about Some Like It Hot. I'm playing Marilyn Monroe. <gasps> it's like a dream come true. <laughs> Um, and it's all about when Marilyn, when, when they made Sound Like It Hot, Marilyn took 48 takes to say, it's me, sugar. And um, it's all about that moment of her not being able to do it. And it's really, really funny. Anyway, so we're doing that. And, so have you um, been, uh, you came from doing that today? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So were you playing Marilyn Monroe? Being Marilyn all day. Do you slip into the voice easily? You don't do that because there were some people who, when they're in cat, they'll, they'll just stay. Do you do it all the way? No. <laughs> oh, I couldn't. I couldn't. I couldn't. I mean, going into the lunch queue, asking for vegetarian option, please. <laughs> just wouldn't work. Because <laughs> apparently when uh, James Franco was making The Disaster Artist, he stayed as Tommy Wiseau whilst he was directing. Oh, God. <laughs> Well, I, I guess that for him that must have been pleasurable. Yeah. <laughs> so, look, we've got you up here to talk about a guilty pleasure, and there are a couple of people that we've allowed to have a pleasure that, frankly, isn't that guilty. And I'll tell you, yours is the least guilty, guilty <laughs> pleasure we have ever had. What is it that you've chosen as a guilty pleasure? I've chosen Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. <laughs> Okay, so tell us about why and when you first saw it and why it's important. You know, when I was growing up, my mum raised me and she just doesn't like films and um, we didn't really have any... We didn't go to the cinema, we didn't watch films. But I remember going to my friend's house on, like, a, a play date and um, she had it on, on, di on video recorded and every time I'd go to her house, I'd be like, let's watch Willy Wonka in the Chocolate Factory. Every single time she'd go, no, but I've got a dream phone upstairs. And I'd say, no, Willy Wonka. And I just loved it. I loved Gene Wilder. And um, he still is, like, one of my favourite actors. For a kid, it's just a dream. That's, like, what you want to do. And you want to go to a factory that's full of rivers of chocolate and... Anyway, I loved it, and it did was you really the, transportive. Did you know the story beforehand, or was it...? No, I didn't. I was, I'm a big fan of Roald Dahl, but it wasn't until I was in my, like, maybe recently, like the last five years, I read the book, which is really fantastic and dark, much darker than this film. Yeah, although there are moments of darkness in this film. We've got a few clips we want to show. Let's start off with a musical number. Do you want to say anything about this before we play it? It's just magical and a little bit weird. Okay. <laughs> Hold your breath. Make a wish. Count to three. Come with me and you'll be in a world of pure imagination. Take a look and you'll see into your imagination. We'll begin with a spin traveling 
In the world of my creation What we'll see will defy Explanation The thing you forget seeing that, I mean, you've done musical theatre, that it's really long takes. I mean, nowadays movies tend to cut every sort of three or four seconds. It's, the whole thing's happening almost in real time. Yeah, it's thrilling, actually. I've only done one musical number on film, which is this film called The Voices, and there's like a big musical number at the end. And it's just so much fun to do these big, long takes where obviously it requires an, it, loads of rehearsal. But it's the closest you get to doing like a play, really. Yeah, but I mean, Gene Wilder, he just, he's got that mixture of like melancholia and magic. and. He's also got the most extraordinary hair system. <laughs> yeah, he because, does. Because we'll show another clip, but his parting starts about an inch above his ear. And everything that's happening on top is, uh, what did they used to call it? Baffler. A baffler, as in it's really baffling. I mean, it's just the most extra. I mean, I'm trying. But I don't think he has a comb. You think he has a comb over? Oh, it's a comb over. I don't think so. We should do a vote because later on you see his hair gets in a flap and there is no bald hair oh, underneath. Oh, there is. Oh, there is. <laughs> oh, that we, and we are so going to take a show of hands that it's. it's, it's I'll it's, always defend you. It's, no, I mean, I love him. I'm not having anything. I mean, you know, I'm losing mine fast don't enough, but you know, it's definitely lick and stick. They can just lift the whole thing up, you know. I think Trump learned a lot of lessons from watching probably not this, this film. film. Okay, well, yes. So, now one of the things that's interesting about the film is that it does have elements of horror in it. The next thing we're going to watch is a song with a morality, because all the way through the, the kids learn the moral of the story. And there is something about it that's slightly creepy, isn't there? Yeah, well, that's in the book. I think Gene, Wa well, the, the Willy Wonka character is kind of, he's not necessarily likeable there's always something a bit um judgmental about him um, he's teaching them the lesson about greed and and uh, loyalty and uh, yeah the next i don't know the next yeah. clip shows that which is the cool. lesson about chewing gum <laughs> it's tomato soup it's hot and creamy i can actually feel it running down my throat stop don't why doesn't she Every listen to mr wonka because better. charlie she's a nitwit this sure is great soup Hey, the second course is coming up. Roast beef and a baked potato. Mmm. With sour cream? <laughs> What's for dessert, baby? Dessert? Here it comes. Blueberry pie and cream. It's the most marvelous blueberry pie I've ever face. tasted. Holy Toledo. What's happening to your face? Cool it, Dad. Let me finish. <laughs> Now, I have to ask you, because obviously that was the version that I saw first when I was a kid, because I am about twice your age. And then there is another version, which is the, the Burton version, which came along later on. Have you, did you ever see the Tim Burton? I did, yeah. And? Shit. <laughs> I'm sorry if anyone worked on it. But, if you, you know, they sometimes remake classic films, like, and you just think, why, 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 you know? Um, yeah, I, 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 I'm so loyal to this this one. Why is it for you that it's a favourite? What is it that you love so much about it? I love its absurdity. I love uh, the seriousness of the undertones of it, and just the kind of the magic of it. The 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 set design, the music is fantastic, and mostly Gene Wilder's performance when he appears outside the factory, it's magic, it's movie magic. What is it about Gene Wilder that you love so much? I love, it's because he's not afraid to be a bit mad. 
um, in all of his performances, there's something a little bit unhinged about him. I think sometimes actors kind of just do this thing where they want to be really naturalistic, and that's great, but not Gene Wilder. <laughs> Since we love this film so much, we've, we, we've, given, uh, we, we, we've chosen three clips. We normally only have two. But I want to have the third one, which was a dialogue clip, because you were mentioning that thing about it has an underlying story, an underlying moral, and it's not scared to be sort of slightly weird. So this is towards the end when Willy Wonka has turned out to be not a wholly sympathetic character you think he might be. He's actually, as you say, quite judgmental. Mm. And this is a scene from the end in which you really start to see what the film's actually about. Yeah. What rules? We didn't see any rules, did we, Charlie? Wrong, sir. Wrong. Under Section 37B of the contract signed by him, it states quite clearly that all offers shall become null and void if, and you can read it for yourself in this photostatic copy, I, the undersigned, shall forfeit all rights, privileges, and licenses, herein and herein contained, etc., etc. Fax mentis incendium gloria calpum, etc., etc. Memo bis punitor delicatum. That was Gemma Arterton live on stage at the MK3D show that I do at the BFI South Bank, and that was recorded pretty much this time last year. The full MK3D Christmas show from this December will be up on the next Kermode on Film podcast. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. And if you've got any reactions, any responses, any questions, please do get in touch. The best way is to contact me through Twitter. The handle is at Kermode Movie. And please mark your questions or your comments. Hashtag Kermode on Film. As I said before, if you enjoyed the podcast, please do subscribe. Be back next week with that full MK3D Christmas 2018 show. Rock and roll has been going downhill ever since Buddy Holly died. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.